Talking APAC, a podcast series brought to you by APAC. APAC is short for Australian Psychology Accreditation Council, and we're the organisation that ensures the quality of psychology programmes offered by higher education providers in Australia. APAC acknowledges the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as the traditional caretakers of the land, and we pay our respects to elders past and present. My name is David Glanz and I'm recording this podcast on the land of the Wurundjeri people, one of the five Kulin nations. Now it's one of the most vexed questions raised by the accreditation standards for psychology programs. So that's APAC's so-called Bible. Criterion 2.2 of Standard 2, which is academic governance and quality assurance processes are effective states, and I quote, quality improvement processes use student evaluation of the programs and internal and external academic and professional peer review, including, and this is the critical point, external benchmarking where programs and assessments may be compared to those offered by other providers. But what does that mean for higher education providers and what defines benchmarking? How do you make sure you're benchmarking against the right benchmark, given the differences in size and resources among providers and the differences in program content? What if you've got a program that's unique? How do you benchmark then? To help answer these and other curly questions, I'm joined today by four experts. Professor Alison Garton is a member of the APAC board and chairs our accreditation assessment committee or AAC. Professor Julianne Pooley is an Associate Dean within the School of Arts and Humanities at Edith Cowan University and she's a long-term member of the AAC and an expert assessor. Tony Machen is Professor Emeritus at the University of Southern Queensland and he's also an APAC assessor. He's been both Head of Department and Head of School and he recently received the 2021 APS Distinguished Contribution to Psychology Education Award. And last, but certainly not least, Associate Professor Linda Byrne is Deputy Head of the School of Psychology at Deakin University, where she was a key participant in the assessment process that APAC carried out there in 2020. So, welcome all of you. Thanks, David. Yeah, thank you. So, Alison, perhaps you could kick us off. Just so we're all on the same page, what is benchmarking and why does it matter? All right, thank you, David. That's a very important question. Benchmarking is part of a suite of of quality improvement tools that we have, not just in psychology, but more broadly. And quality improvement is an important process. At the individual level, so rather than compared the individual and internal level, it's usually conducted through um, viewing current processes and policies within an organization to see how they're working. So um, I've actually looked at quite a number of of QI programs uh, on paper recently, and um, they seem to involve talking to stakeholders, measuring what what is of interest, and having a look at the time that's involved, particularly with the process and how uh, 
how much time is involved and whether that is, is a factor in the efficiency and efficacy of that particular process. The same sort of um, procedure takes place when you look at policies as well. So there's some stakeholder involvement. Let's have a look and see what works, what doesn't work. Benchmarking is somewhat different insofar as it compares the processes and policies and so on and so forth to best practices, ideally best practices, but certainly with others, certainly with competitors, but ideally, as I said, with the best. We use, as I mentioned, basic metrics for measuring, uh, I guess, things like the quality, the time, the cost. So very similar measures as we would use for an internal uh, quality improvement process. But in this case, um, we're looking to compare ourselves with others, um, and I say with the others who we consider to uh, engage in the best practice. Now, while it's called quality improvement, um, sometimes it's just quality assurance, uh, in that you probably think that what you do is perfectly adequate and meets your and fit for purpose for your particular organisation. But it's useful to exchange ideas, experiences, thoughts, because the sharing of ideas is actually a very useful mechanism by which quality can be assessed and improved. So I think I've answered the second part of the question as well, which I think it does matter, <laughs> clearly. And it's something that's actually fairly new in, in the sense that we're using it now uh, to psychology. We've had some sort of um, benchmarking in the past, but that really just involved reviewing honours theses at another institution. Um, so it was, it, was, it was fairly limited. And then we sort of moved to some sort of benchmarking and people didn't really know what it was and they never came out with very much agreement between, between um, HEPs. They all seem to have different ways of measuring and marking things. So I think what we're now undertaking, and we see this coming through in, in some of the um, HEPs that are taking this really seriously and engage in a, a process to, I guess, to quality assure and quality improve. Um, rather than just doing it as a one-off. But I'll leave that to the other experts because they've been much more involved in, the, in, in doing benchmarking than I have been. Okay, well, perhaps we'll move on to Julianne. TEXA, which is the organisation, as we know, responsible for standards in the tertiary sector, publishes what looks to me like some useful guidelines on benchmarking and taken together with Alison's useful summary it should all be surely pretty straightforward, but clearly it's a difficult question for at least some psychology program providers. What kind of issues do people raise with you? I think you're exactly right. Alison's described fantastically the QA and QI, the quality assurance and quality improvement. And TEXA are really interested in the higher education sector as such. And so they start to boil it down to things like thinking about, you know, um, organisational kind of benchmarking, course benchmarking, process benchmarking outcomes. And as um, Alison talked about, sort of best practice kind of benchmarking. And I think um, in psychology, we've come from a history of literally getting our honours thesis looked at. Um, by another marker and seeing if the standards align in terms of, I suppose, the outcome, the data being an outcome-based um, um, assessment. 
but realistically for psychology programs now there's a, a way in which we can look much broader than that um, we can look at some of the processes that we inherently do or the practices that we er inherently do across different programs in Australia but we can also look at um, program structures we could look at assessment itself uh, in terms of how it's designed or the kinds of assessment that we actually use because obviously within um, our APAC standards we're also interested in seeing that that our students are um, uh, that they have access to doing things in different ways so we can look at the kinds of assessments are they authentic kinds of assessments we can also look at different ways in which we do things around um, the different aspects of the programs that we do and I think these are things that that psychology programs or HEPs are starting to think about and, and understand about the quality in terms of their le uh, teaching and learning methods and how we can actually start to use some of those albeit within a psychology program, what it does give us is it gives us opportunity also to talk with our other discipline colleagues um, because best practice may not be in our own discipline. It may be, but it may not be. Um, and we can infuse our psychological training and knowledge by using best practice from other areas as well. So it actually broadens what we can do and um, you can become quite innovative in the way in which you can benchmark Tony, perhaps turning to you, Texas says benchmarking should become a shared conversation and a form of peer review and development, as well as a mechanism to drive institutional change and quality improvement. That's an awful lot of work for one concept. In real life, is it your experience that things work that way? No, I, th I don't think it always does. And um, this is part, I think, of our challenge as um, education, educators and <clears throat> professionals in this space um, to try to find effective ways of developing our understanding and, and practice in this area. So I think this is a pretty important area for us to focus on. Uh, one, one of the ways um, I've helped contribute to that just this year was through our psychology education interest group in the APS where we've run a series of roundtables and those topics included important ones like cultural responsiveness and there was an honour focus on assessment and then the under, I think the first one was more to do with the undergraduate program, although there was some postgraduate stuff. The, the point though was we, we see that there is value in having these, these conversations, share conversations with sometimes a stimulus or a presentation because if you're, a, if you're an educator, you have a responsibility to be... Um, really you know aware of what it is that is going on in in the space um, and thinking about how that impacts on your own teaching and, and scholarly practices so how, how you actually do that uh, I think is has always been the challenge and just as a sort of a, a brief antidote um, I recall back in a previous decade I became a head of department and um, Went to one of our regular hotspur meetings and someone jokingly but maybe not said well don't don't stay here too long or you'll get caught up in a you know a pack and you'll have to do this kind of very intensive exercise where you know you self-reflect and everything has to be assembled and put together just for the the APAC accreditation so you could see the the work sort of peaking around the time that APAC um, submission is is um, put in 
and then I think the implication was it tapers off <laughs> and you don't do anything then for a year or two or three, um, but then you have to engage in this intensive process again. Okay, so um, whether it was a joke or not, um, the, the perception was that these are the very most intensive periods, very hard, a lot, a lot of extra effort, and, and I think we have to move away from that. I think we just have to find ways to incorporate these regular activities or conversations, whatever we're going to call them, in, into our practice as educators, because, you know, that's, that's I think, the way to avoid falling back to a, a practice of thinking of it as something you do every so often, but then you can be, you know, you can kind of relax for a little while until, until the next period comes around. And um, that example of the psychology education interest group is just one of the, the ones that I can cite. I could also point to other communities of practice that have occurred, and particularly in the honours space, that um, that have focused on meeting regularly and reviewing practices, not just the marking of the thesis, which everyone perhaps was familiar with, but all of the things that go into the um, delivery of the fourth year, or level, let's call it APAC, um, level two kinds of programs. So an ongoing facilitated discussion, meeting with other program directors or course directors, whatever you call them, bringing up issues, helping develop solutions that then can be shared widely. I think this is where we really get um, some really exciting things happening. Linda, you've been waiting patiently. Uh, can I ask you, you're off to the benchmarking ball. Who do you choose as your dance partner and why? That's a good question, David. I think that the the key is, well, I think there are a number of, a number of things that you have to keep in mind. And I guess from a practical point of view, uh, you have to keep in mind what your current market is. So for example, if you're located in a particular state, you probably wouldn't choose to benchmark with another organisation within your state. So moving so that you're not necessarily seeing as direct competitors in that particular market. Now, that's not to say that conversations don't happen between organisations in the same state, but uh, I think that it's just uh, sometimes easier if you're working with someone who's not directly within your market. The other thing is, I think, is having a good relationship with course directors or heads of school or whoever is responsible for some of that APAC accreditation within other organisations. So having conversations with other institutions and trying to uh, match yourself up with someone who's out of cycle with, with yourself so that you can enter into uh, a memorandum of understanding or something like that so that you can actually have that process that uh, is you know tapping into what Tony said, that it's not just an activity that you suddenly do in the year of your accreditation. It has to be something that's thought out over some time and planned and you really want to try and pick an organisation that shares, if possible, a number of different courses. So choosing someone where you can uh, match the courses so that there can be that quid pro quo, that, that you're going to assist them in their year of accreditation and that they'll return that favour as well. And if that relationship works well, then that can be that continual uh, refinement and development over time so it's not just a whole lot of work that occurs just prior to someone's accreditation cycle so typically 
that would be conversations that are happening uh, at least 12 months and sometimes longer prior to an accreditation cycle to ensure that uh, appropriate assessments are chosen, appropriate content, uh, the different types of assessments and the different types of programs. So all of that, uh, which means many meetings, many discussions, many emails, to put in place those processes to try and make sure that goes as smoothly as possible. Because we all know once the institution is in the accreditation cycle, there are a lot of moving parts, a lot of things to think about, and benchmarking is something that you don't want to leave until the very last minute. Just reflecting on Tanya's point about that it should be a process that's smoothed out over time rather than a lumpy process. How much time does it actually take you to to benchmark both formally and informally? Uh, well, I think the informal benchmarking, certainly from our perspective, uh, happens all the time. So we have course directors who are frequently assessing. So for example, when we look at our own program content, they'll be looking at similar program uh, across the, the country to ensure that we're doing things that are that are similar. When it comes to the actual process of, of benchmarking um, assessment pieces and you, you're wanting to do that programmatically, so not just on, on, on a unit here and there, it does take time because you have to identify the critical units that you're going to review and you want to try and make things as smooth as possible for both partners. So you try and choose uh, units that will be core to both and that are similar so that the work is going to be less onerous than if you're choosing completely units or, or content that is not within the wheelhouse of your partner institution. So it's also making sure that the people that are going to be doing the benchmarking for you have enough time. Workload is always an issue. So uh, you obviously want the the content experts. So you want the unit chairs or the, the senior tutors to do the, the work if it's a if it's a marking process. So I would say that um, when you're assisting, so for example, with the partner organisation that we have worked with recently, uh, it was a six to eight month process of of backwards and forwards to do all of the different parts of the programs that we were uh, agreeing to, to do. So it takes it takes quite a while. I think what you've just said, Linda, is a fairly comprehensive benchmarking exercise as well. And that's not necessarily um, how benchmarking has been um, you know, perceived as well. Sometimes it might be perceived as more limited, you know, picking a couple of units and and comparing them, but not necessarily examining other things. Well, that was actually really, that takes me on to my next question, which I was going to ask Alison, and that is there's a lot of moving parts in the psychology program. Should providers be trying to benchmark everything? Curriculum, student satisfaction, I don't know, staffing levels, all the elements that go in to make a program work. And if you do have to benchmark every element, do you have to benchmark them all against another provider or can you benchmark against a multiplicity? Yes, to some extent this has been answered by Linda's approach to how they've gone about uh, benchmarking and then Tony's sort of rejoinder, if you like, to that. My uh, initial response to this question was to do them sort of targeted benchmarking rather than the comprehensive overarching benchmarking. But I can 
hear from what Linda was saying that there is some there's, there's, there's quite good reason for doing a more comprehensive taking a more comprehensive approach. However, having said that, I actually like the idea of benchmarking with different partners for different things that you're looking at. I don't think necessarily that the, the partner that you choose to um, compare assessments is necessarily the same partner as you'd want to choose if you're looking at student satisfaction, for example. Because if we're looking for best practice, and that's, I mean, if, if, we, if we assume that that's what benchmarking is, I mean, there is a also cause for that not to necessarily be the only the, the only reason that we're doing the the only group of benchmarking that we do is against best practice but i think it's important that we yeah that the um the partner is selected for the 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 uh, benchmarking that we want to do and doing it in a systematic a more systematic approach one you know one one by one approach i think that's easier on staff it's easier on the benchmarking process it may well ultimately more time consuming over an extended period of time because you're doing it sort of almost piecemeal but i think the outcomes might be more satisfying um, in terms of being able to identify areas that your psychology program is good at and identifying areas where you can actually improve things for staff and students julianne I was going to say, I mean, you can act like the example that Linda's given and sort of what Alison's alluding to as well. You could actually have a stepped approach in the sense that, um, you know, desktop benchmarking. So you could actually follow the, depending on what you're looking at, especially say if it's at a, a postgraduate level and you're wanting to look at some of the desktop information that you can get on the web about a university, you can actually get quite a lot of information from programs just on the university's websites themselves to understand course structures, to understand some, you know, things like um, unit learning outcomes, course learning outcomes, they're actually all on the web. So you can actually do a desktop and follow at a broader level a set of universities that may be similar to and then as aspirational to and then you could go into depth on areas that you are specifically wanting to develop and feed back into the development of your own program so there are different ways of doing it and I think that's really what um, you know APAC are interested in seeing is that you're connected to and that you're looking at what best practice and and, and not just quality assuring but also quality improving and, and it's that feedback mechanism and loop yeah, I'd, I'd certainly agree with that, Julie. I would suggest that that partnering with a, a, another university or another institution is not the only part of that, that there are many parts to that benchmarking, uh, part of which is, is choosing someone who you can exchange information with, but that, that desktop benchmarking is incredibly important. And also even being part of, Tony talked about the community of practice before, mm -hmm. there are a number of those around Australia, um, for example, the within the, the clinical space where you have meetings of the clinical heads or the, the placement coordinators. So there is there is benchmarking that also happens at that level. There is the uh, you know the indigenous group that meets so that we can benchmark against what's happening across our, our courses. So I think there are many parts to it. It's not just about choosing a partner, although that obviously is incredibly important too. You can't leave that out. And aside from having that one partner, often institutions will reach out and uh, you know you can have multiple partners. It's not just about that one one time. Uh, 
because if you've got other institutions that are interested in what you're doing uh, or sharing that information, I think there's growth to be had from all of those experiences. One of the questions I raised at the beginning was, how do you benchmark if you have a program that is genuinely unique? How, how can you benchmark when there's nobody else necessarily operating in exactly the same space? Julianne, do you got any suggestions? Um, I think, well, inherently we are, all of the programs are operating in the same space, so you can choose the kinds of things that you try to benchmark. And, and it may be that you're looking specifically at a, one of the graduate competencies that you want to benchmark, or it may be that you're looking at how interprofessional learning, because some of HEPs, they do interprofessional learning very, very well. And if you're still a specific uh, specialisation that is different to everybody else, you can still look at how that aspect is actually done. So it's about understanding what other programs do do and how they do it. It might be about looking at the way in which they develop, say, competent, graduate competency 3.17, which is about um, research and how that's embedded within a program. There's just different aspects of programs that you can actually look at. Um, you, or you could look at some of the graduate competencies at sort of like your level three or your level two and, and actually have a look at those across programs and where they may be assessed how much they may be assessed. So it's not just about the grading methods they used, it might be about the assessment methods that are used. And when you start looking at programs from a different set of glasses, you get to see that the specialisation that they have or the area of uh, practice endorsement that they have doesn't preclude them from being able to benchmark with um, another institution um, that is doing well or you know is, is, is exhibiting best practice in that way. I'd also like to suggest that you can use international benchmarking. Yeah. So don't feel restricted to uh, Australian psychology providers. There are psychology providers worldwide. And I think we need to think a little bit more broadly. And I, I think Julianne's points are, are excellent points because, in fact, we can look at things that are not, not necessarily the sole domain of a, an, area, an area of practice endorsement. We can look more broadly. But I also think we can... Uh, tap into the international market. We've got international collaborators, friends, competitors who we can turn to if we feel that we don't have the necessary expertise here in Australia. But I think if we take Julianne's approach, then we, we can remain within the Australian context. We, you know, we can think more broadly. Yeah. Linda, if I can turn to you. Your programs were assessed in 2020, so I've got a two-part question. First, when the APAC assessors came knocking, how did you show them that you'd benchmarked in an appropriate and useful way? And after you've explained that, what were the results of your benchmarking? What came out of the exercise? So the, um, the information that's shared comes from a, a number of different sources. So some of the benchmarking is around those desktop, you know, showing that, that our programs are similar to or that we're, we're meeting or exceeding best practice against other universities uh, based upon widely uh, available information. Other information where we're actually demonstrating that we have benchmarked assessments within our courses. Um, here we we used the, because uh, it's always difficult to know exactly, exactly what to provide, but we chose to use the external referencing of standards documentation. So there was a, a program, 
uh, I think it was actually a, an alt Office of Learning and Teaching Award when there used to be such things a few years ago where there were a number of different universities that came together to put together this kind of um, example of collaborative end-to-end -end review processes for external referencing. I found that quite useful. We'd, we'd use that within our own uh, major course reviews, so an internal process within the university. And so using that documentation was quite useful that we, we could actually exchange that with another university and have them, uh, we provided, for example, uh, de-identified pieces of assessment across various, across our courses at different levels, and then had them fill out these reports to say whether they agreed with it, whether they met the unit learning outcomes, course learning outcomes, etc. So that document was actually quite useful because it it is quite structured and we could then give that to the assessors to show that we um, had conducted that external, uh, external benchmarking. Uh, what were the results of it? Uh, by and large, we found that we were doing a good job, I think, in terms of our, uh, our assessments and that the the marking, the standards of marking were uh, equivalent across the, the both our markers and the benchmarking uh, equivalents. We did find that there were some that needed to be refined and, and reviewed, which is always uh, important to understand. And I think from some of the, the sort of uh, desktop benchmarking that Julianne was talking about, it's really useful, I think, to do, uh, to, to have a look at whether in fact you are using a range of assessment, uh, different assessment methods across the, the, the courses. One thing that, that we found uh, a little bit challenging and that we're still working through what this means for as, as we move forward and do our continual kind of benchmarking is within some of our professional courses now, the, the level three and level four courses, where we use a lot of competency-based assessments, so OSCEs, et cetera. You know, how do you provide that information to or examples of student work when it's um, you know a live uh, sort of assessment uh, to your benchmarking partner so that they can adequately determine whether that student has met competency or not uh, you know do you provide them with a, a recording how do you get the students to agree to those sorts of things so I guess that's that's some of the challenges that we need to look at moving forward as well because the written information is always pretty straightforward but when you're starting to look at competency-based assessment then uh, then it can be a little bit trickier a nice challenge isn't it <laughs> yes I, I believe um I've seen a pretty good example of that um, as an assessor where those um, judgments, those um, OSCEs are actually involving people who are not just academics in the school, but they're including um, things like practitioners, um, etc. Um, so I think there's an argument then that you are benchmarking your competencies assess assessments, um, but not it's not against an education provider, it's using um, people who are skilled professionals as well. In the field, yeah, and having that process set up, yeah. Yeah, so I think, I think that's the creative way to think about benchmarking. It can be, um, you know, not, not just that straight comparison with how the processes and outcomes from another institution as well.
It's also a very efficient method because it literally kills a number of birds with one stone, doesn't it? Because it provides you that opportunity to do the commentary around benchmarking. But it also, well, it's actually a number of different things. It connects people into the processes as well. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a really clever way of doing something in terms of process benchmarking. Tony, just coming back to you with my last formal question. How have your programs benefited from benchmarking over the years? And as someone who's led at multiple levels, what advice would you give to someone who's new to leading a program or, or, or a school for that matter? Well, I'm not going to tell them to avoid the, uh, <laughs> the APEC accreditation part of the um, job. That, that is a really, you know, it's such an important part of the role to guide a school or a department or a discipline through its accreditation processes. So I think you have to upskill as much as you possibly can. You know, you could potentially volunteer to be an APAC assessor. That's a, that's a pretty interesting way to upskill. I found it was actually incredibly um, important to be part of uh, teams that visited other universities. And, and prior to APAC, it was um, college course approval roles um, within a different accreditation system. But I always found that the more, the more I could kind of expose myself to what's going on elsewhere, I think the better you then are able to review what you're doing in your own area, your own school. So and that, that's, a, I think, a strong recommendation. There, there are so many things, actually, that you could potentially do to, to improve the, the organisational capacity that you've got. Um, so talking with people who've got expertise within the university sector, I think is key. If it's within your own institution, then that, those people will exist in a quality improvement role somewhere and, and you should be uh, open to them. Um, unfortunately, sometimes antagonism exists and uh, I quite understand some, sometimes the perception is things are imposed and we have to follow through these um, processes and that just feels somewhat um, uh, you know, not well. It's necessary, but it doesn't always feel very comfortable when when something is happening within an institution. But on the other hand, you could also reframe it as you know, if, even though it's imposed, and institutional reviews and other things are uh, are there to satisfy ultimately TEXA, try and get value from them for your own um, you know school and or department or disciplines. But, benefit as well. So don't just see everything as being ticking boxes and going through some sort of, you know, awful process, but, you know, try and find ways to, to capitalise on those things. And ultimately, if you can influence the whole institutional process, why not bring internal reviews and external reviews like APAC together? So, you know, you try and produce a really efficient process where if you're doing an internal five-yearly review, it may, you know, line it up with your with your APAC. So that those are some of the things that I think can potentially assist um, what is a difficult and, and challenging exercise. Um, but, you know, don't, don't kind of feel like there's nothing that you could do to influence how it happens within your context as well. There will be things you can do. Absolutely, Tony. I think that what you've said there is really important that institutions, we, we all have these regular reviews. So uh, institutions are, the, the APAC reviews are so incredibly thorough and the documentation, of course, the documentation within an external, uh, internal documentation is obviously never exactly the same as APAC, so it always feels like you, you might be doing double the work. 
But if you can uh, get the committees to allow you to do it in the same year, then usually there is some uh, some benefit because there's going to be a reduction in the amount of, of uh, doubling up on work that, that often institutions will accept uh, evidence from from the external accreditors as to meeting those particular standards. That's, that's I think, part of our, our learning when we're, you know, in a senior role is, is you've got to think about how you can produce that efficiency because everyone's time is limited. And, and I guess the other really strong recommendation is don't underestimate um, the time that it takes and the, the emotional effort and energy to, to be... Um, reviewed you're opening yourself up and you know they'll see everything about your your um school department or discipline and that can be also somewhat challenging but it's not it's not a threat necessarily it can also you know bring about all kinds of learning um and change um and you know as psychology trained people this should be something that we really endorse quite strongly that if if we engage in it appropriately really are open and then we'll get some some fantastic gains from it. Um, but I, I just want to acknowledge that it is a lot of work, and, and people um, people can be starting from perhaps a lower base um, than than perhaps they had in the past, where um, you know it, it might have been easier. But the the world is more complicated, I think, than it ever has been. So this is just a recognition then as well that you know everyone may may need a bit of extra time um, support and and resourcing than, um, than we might have thought was necessary. Can I, can I ask a question, please? How do you maintain or even enhance collegiality during a, an internal or an external review? Because, it, I mean, the way you're talking, you're talking more generally, but it sounds as though the head takes quite a bit of responsibility, and I know that's not necessarily the case. So how do you bring along your colleagues in a school or department of psychology, um, yeah. <laughs> there there is a variety of views about um, these processes, <laughs> from um, perhaps enthusiasm, but also you know towards the other side of the um, yes. either yeah. not interested or um, you know almost oppositional. So so yeah. I think I think this is a bit of a um, an opportunity for heads to consider you know what's what's the goal? What are you really after here? And uh, high-quality programs that achieve the out, their outcomes and deliver really good experiences to students is pretty well what everyone wants. But um, mm -hmm. when you're trying to do it in a tough environment with other competing priorities, that's that's still the big challenge. Uh, and that's why the leadership has to be really good, um, really good during these times. Yeah, and you'd want to try and build that culture of like reflection and outward looking and then you know bringing it back in and if you can do that um it's fantastic i think but it, it is a challenge to do that and i think planning comes uh is, is really important as well tony so that you know this is it's a five-year process but it's not okay if you're just doing it and thinking about it in the six months before that the accreditation cycle happens because that's when you're going to really put everyone under under pressure because it can't just be done. It should be held usually by one person so that that can be coordinated. But there are so many people that need to be contributing to that process. So you need to plan, be consultative, have the right people on board. You're absolutely right. You've got to have the leaders that have enthusiasm for it and really understand why we're part of this process. And I think looking at it from 
that partnership perspective rather than adversarial. So, you know, APAC is a partner to the institutions, and I think that that sometimes can be a difficult place for some institutions to kind of conceptualise. But from being on both sides, I think that we, we just have to understand that our goals are going to be the same, that, as you say, we wanted to uh, deliver a high-quality experience to our students. We want to be providing our profession with safe practitioners, uh, and we want to, to do that in a way where we continually develop and grow and, and improve our own performance. So if, if we're all on the same page, then I think that it, it makes it easier to go into this process to, to support those outcomes. I've often wondered whether really the starting point for any review is just to articulate the purpose of that degree or program and make sure everyone agrees why it's there in the first place before you start collecting data and, you know, trying to compare it with other um, providers or institutions because it's amazing what happens when you start discussing things like that um, and you get disagreement even on, on what a purpose of a, of a particular degree program is. Well, thank you. To all of you, it's been a really rich discussion. I think it makes clear that regular ongoing benchmarking against other providers helps you improve your own programs and that it's a continuous process of analysing, formulating improvement plans, implementing them and then going back and benchmarking again. And one thing I think it's important to say from APAC's point of view is that if benchmarking highlights your strengths rather than areas for improvement, that's absolutely fine too. And the important thing is just to uh, communicate that clearly to our, our assessors. So thanks to all of you. Uh, really appreciate your time and we'll look forward to you joining us for our next episode. Thanks, David. Thank, Thank you. you.